This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his guidance and direction on our study today. Father, it is through your word, through the sanctifying ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, that you have ordained to be the means by which we are nourished spiritually and the means by which we grow spiritually. Father, our study of your word is not just an academic exercise to learn more, to find out more, to simply have our intellectual curiosity satisfied, but it is it is a means to an end, and that end is to glorify you as we learn to think as you would have us to think and live as you would have us to live, that we may manifest your will in terms of our day-to-day decisions in such a way that that your plan is testified to in our lives and is vindicated by our obedience to you. Now, Father, we pray that as we study your word this morning that you just help us to understand these things, that as we focus upon what Paul says in Colossians 3, that we might see how this relates to our own life, our own decision-making, our own actions, that we might uh, be pushed by your word to grow, to take another step forward and to implement your word uh, as we know we should. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Now, if you've been around Houston for any length of time, and it's not limited to Houston. We have a lot of people who live in other cities across the nation, and in just about every city you have something that is like Harwin Street here in Houston. You can drive over to Harwin and go up and down Harwin, and you can find a counterfeit of just about anything you want, from watches to dresses to shirts to suitcases, luggage, whatever, you can find some sort of counterfeit. Some of them are rather obvious knockoffs, and others are uh, probably uh, considered to be pretty pretty good knockoffs. But the Harwin Street, or it's like somewhere else, is not the only place you find knockoffs. find a lot of knockoffs in just about every church in town spiritual knockoffs, spiritual counterfeits. We usually refer to them as works of uh, places of legalism, places of asceticism, places of religion, where the focus is on some sort of external uh, 
superficial application of the word in terms of following a preset list of rules of uh, don't do this and don't do that, not unlike the problem that the uh, Corinthians faced with this, these false teachers who had come in uh, emphasizing rules like, uh, as Paul says, do not taste, uh, do not touch, do not drink. These kinds of things have always plagued Christianity because the biggest problem that people have is trying to understand the difference when it may look the same on the outside between counterfeit spirituality and true spirituality. As our passage that we've been building up to as we've talked about various things from uh, the last part of Colossians chapter 2 up through the opening part of Colossians 3 starts to come together for us as we look at Colossians 3.5. We've looked at it in some ways in the past uh, past few weeks. But in Colossians 3.5 we read, Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. This needs to be read within the general context, which goes from verse 5 down through verse 11. So let me read the next few verses. Paul says this, gives this command, Therefore, put to death, assassinate, send out a hit squad, however you want to uh, put it, seek and destroy mission on these uh, manifestations of your sin nature. He says, Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now, emphasizing the contrast between what we were before we were saved and who we are now with our new uh, identity, we have a new uh, ID card now uh, as, as members of the body of Christ, those who have been baptized into Christ, He says, but now you yourselves are to put off all these. And then he gives another list of sins, including uh, both uh, uh, mental attitude sins and overt sins, sins of the tongue. He says in verse 9, do not lie to one another since you have put off. See, now we are to put off in verse 8. Now we have put off the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, I wanted to read through that. We're not going to get to the last part of this this morning, but we have to understand a little bit about where Paul is going. Many times it's helpful when you're reading anything from an editorial in the newspaper to a large book to go to the conclusion and see where the writer is headed. Find out some idea of what it is that he's talking about because there are times when we read somebody and we think they're talking about A, B, or C and they're actually talking about the opposite of A, B, and C. And we're not sure because they don't either they don't make it clear in the introduction, or we're not as uh, informed about the opinions or beliefs or viewpoint of the author, and even if we are, it's a maybe a difficult topic or subject, and he's writing in a complex manner, and so 
we can sometimes miss the point. So sometimes it's good to read in reading anything to just sort of give it a little survey before you start. Read the beginning, the introduction, where if it's a good author, he will tell you what he hopes to accomplish in what he is writing. Read the conclusion, because there he will pull the threads together, hopefully, for us, so that we can understand uh, where he started, where he ended, and how he got from the beginning to the end. And then just sort of skim through the table of contents, for if it's a pretty decent or developed table of contents, it will give you an idea of the roadmap of his thinking. Now, that's sort of what we do here because he starts, Paul starts off here in verse 5 with this command to put to death your members, and he ends up going back to something he's introduced and emphasized continuously through this section, and that is the baptism by the Holy Spirit. For Paul, it's almost like whatever it is, that, whatever the problem is that you have in life, if you want to solve that problem, you need to go back to what happened when you got saved in terms of your identification with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. You don't need to go to the psychotherapist. You don't need to uh, go uh, look into sociological trends. You don't need to examine your genealogy and the habit patterns of your family to find these solutions. You need to go to the Word of God to find out what it is that transpired at that instant that you trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior. A lot of different things happen. People have categorized these a lot of different ways. Uh, I've never really uh, done that. Uh, Louis Ferry Chafer, who was the founder of Dallas Seminary, uh, emphasized this in his systematic theology. He had, uh, I think it was 32 or 33 things that uh, God did for you at the instant of salvation that was expanded upon to 34, 36, 40. Others have broken it down into individual line items because some of his individual line items contain seven or eight subpoints. And so others have just taken all of those and they say, well, it's not just that you receive certain ministries of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling ministry, the filling ministry, the spiritual gifts. These are all significant and as important as some of these other major line items. So let's just break them all out. And I've seen people have lists as long as a 100. Usually they're all the same things. It's just a matter of organization. The issue is that we really can't identify all of them or list them all as 30 or 40 or 100 or 150. That's a small number when the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 1, 3, that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. That's a big number. It's a lot more than 32 or 40 or 105 or 150. Uh, we've been blessed with every spiritual. There are present possessions, and we need to learn what they are and how to live in light of them. That's what the Christian life is all about, and that's why Paul keeps going back to to this starting point of what happened when we were saved. And what he always does is he says, because this happened and you're now in Christ, therefore, and he ends up with certain behavioral mandates. Behaviors, not, I'm not limiting that to just external actions, overt actions, but how you should think, how we should think, how we should uh, deal with certain emotional sins, how we should deal with sin as a whole, how we should deal with uh, 
overt lifestyle. These are all part of the the package, but it starts with understanding what happened to Christ, and it ultimately starts, too, with understanding that the real dynamic for the Christian life in this church age is that we've been given God the Holy Spirit who indwells us and who fills us. That filling ministry is part that is essential to spiritual growth. Uh, Paul uses other language to talk about that filling ministry. He talks about the uh, we're to walk by means of the Spirit. We're to walk in the light, uh, other phrases that he uses. But the dynamics of doing that somehow seem to elude a lot of people. And what they end up doing is something not unlike what the Colossians did, and that is they just come up with a list of things to do, sort of a code of conduct that if they just do certain things and don't do certain things, no mention of the Holy Spirit, then they'll be okay. They will be growing spiritually. And so what they've done is they've reduced spirituality in the New Testament sense and true spiritual growth to nothing more than just a system of ethics or a system of morality. This is what legalism is. Uh, legalism is one of those funny terms. I talked about it last time because when I get into a passage like this that has these kinds of specifics, it's easy for some people to sort of slip off and think that that uh, this this is just legalism to say that you have to do certain things and you ought not do other things. What we have to learn is a key principle here, and that is that anyone can be moral. Anyone can be ethical at a superficial level. Jesus talked about the Pharisees who were the, really the good guys. If you just stop a minute and get rid of the sort of the ideas that we have from, from the Gospels and think of it as just culturally you're Jewish, you're living in the first century, and you've got four or five different religious groups out there, the good guys of the, of, of the options are the Pharisees. They're the ones who really believe that the... Uh, that the Torah was given by God and was revealed by God, and that God is serious about obeying the Torah, and that the disobedience of which is why uh, Israel was taken out of the land in 586 B.C. and punished by God. So their ultimate motivation is we, we've got to be serious about obeying the word. The trouble is they ended up, as so often happens, making that just sort of a superficial thing. So that they, um, so that Jesus depicts them as whitewashed sepulchers, whitewashed tombstones. They look good on the outside, but on the inside, it's just dead men's bones. And so it's just a superficial or counterfeit sort of, of spirituality. There are a lot of people who can, on the outside, appear to develop Christian virtues. But what Scripture teaches is that the only way to have these real virtues as established by God are done and produced by God the Holy Spirit. And if he's not making that transformation from the inside out, as it were, then it's just something that's that's superficial. Now, having said that, there are people that there are theological groups that go in a couple of different directions. And this was the focus of the Chafer Pastors Conference last year 
showing that there are within Christianity a number of different models or approaches to the Christian life. Within our tradition and our uh, orientation coming out of mostly a Lewis Berry Chafer, C.I. Schofield background of uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, though there are basically three views of the Christian life that tend to influence people from our tradition. The one is the Calvinistic or the Reformed view, which uh, really doesn't say much about God the Holy Spirit. In fact, uh, if you were to take the time to read uh, a couple of the large theological tomes written by some of the foremost uh, Calvinistic or Reformed theologians up until the beginning of the 20th century on the Holy Spirit. They don't even mention the baptism of the Holy Spirit or walking by the Spirit or the filling of the Spirit. It's all about just do this and do that. And it's as if, if, you're, if you're following the commands of Scripture and the prohibitions of Scripture, then that becomes spirituality. They've confused morality with spirituality. In reaction to that, and there was a reaction that set into that Calvinistic approach in the 19th century, and it was known by various different names, Keswick theology, holiness theology, which eventually developed into the holiness Pentecostal movement, but they recognized that God the Holy Spirit played a unique and distinct role if you follow the scripture that you just can't put to death the deeds of the flesh. You have to, as Paul says in Romans 8, 11, put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Holy Spirit. But they overemphasized the Holy Spirit to the point that they slipped into mysticism. And all mysticism is nothing more than intellectual or spiritual licentiousness because it ultimately deifies your own emotions as you try to identify those with the promptings of the Holy Spirit which involves a number of misidentifications, mistranslations, misinterpretations of Scripture. Now, the best, most exegetically sound approach to the spiritual life was developed within a stream of thought. Not everyone in that stream of thought is identical because there's a development and a uh, clarification of the teaching came from uh, C.I. Schofield, Lewis Berry Chafer, uh, a number of others emphasizing the fact that it has to be done by walking by the Spirit. Mysticism tends to put so much emphasis on the on the Holy Spirit that it's almost like I'm just going to let go and let God. That was a big uh, sort of a cliché, a slogan, a brand that was used to... It sounds good... But it was it, it became this 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 slogan for the holiness movement and the Pentecost and the uh, excuse me the Keswick movement, and it was the idea that if I just get in if I'm just in fellowship and let the Holy Spirit take over, then He sort of automatically makes the decisions for me. Well, what happened to my volition? And see, a word that they used was the word control. And if you read Schofield, if you read Schaefer, and you read some others, they'll use this word control because they, they were influenced. The early, early uh, developers or theologians within our tradition were influenced because they spoke at the, in the late 19th century Bible conferences and prophecy conferences together, and they, they heard the victorious life teaching, but they didn't really understand the spiritual life in the same way, but they used some of the same vocabulary. This is why 
Uh, Louis Berry Chafer, for example, was criticized by one of the foremost theologians in the United States in the early 19th, early 20th century by the name of Benjamin Breckinridge Warfield. And Chafer had tremendous respect for Warfield, but Warfield just uh, slaughtered him because he, he used victorious life terminology. And so uh, Warfield interpreted that to mean that Chafer was into victorious life theology, this sort of let go and let God mentality. But Chafer wasn't. He just was just using that vocabulary. So control's not a good word because the Holy Spirit doesn't control you. It influences you. But the control, the command and control center in the human soul is our volition. We may be influenced by the Holy Spirit. He may be the one when we're in fellowship and we're walking by the Spirit. He's the one who's leading us and guiding us, but he's not the one who is making us walk. The command to walk by the Spirit is addressed to you and me, to our volition to walk by the Spirit and we walk by means of or aided by God the Holy Spirit. I've used the illustration in the past, watching elderly people who've had uh, problems with uh, their ability to walk, that they use a walker. But that walker doesn't take them anywhere. They're the ones who are making the decisions as to where to go, but they do it by means of that walker. Without the walker, they don't go anywhere. But with the walker, they're able to go wherever their volition directs them. That's like the Christian life. We are uh, volitionally engaged at every point. But the issue is whether we are doing it by means of the Spirit or not, or according to the flesh. So there's this, this important distinction that we have to bring out is that the commands of Scripture that we see uh, for example, in this passage, putting to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And then there's another list in verse 8, uh, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language, which is a bad translation. New King James and King James, some others translated it that way. This is really a word that the Apostle Paul coined. And if you have a New American Standard, it probably comes closer to the meaning. I'll get into that more next time. And the New American Standard translates it abusive language. It's a, it, it's close to that. It's, it's not the idea of, uh, filthy language or lewd language or dirty jokes or something like that. This is, this is a, a, an abusive, disrespectful, anti-authority type of, of a language that is close to, uh, blasphemy, which is, is mentioned uh, just prior to that, and so uh, the phrase "filthy language" is uh, really appositional uh, 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 or explanatory of the term blasphemy. So, um, too often English translations uh, make it sound like he's talking about uh, uh, Paul is talking about something else, but we'll get into that next time. So there's these lists of sins. Then verse 9, don't lie to one another. Uh, and so these are, this is a code of conduct that we've been given. Now the scriptures list a number of other passages where you have these kinds of lists. We sort of talked about this some if you've been paying attention to, uh, in our Roman study, there was a list 
of, uh, of positive things in, in Romans chapter 5, verses uh, 3, 4, 5, and I talked about that, went over to uh, 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. We talked about these virtue lists these, that were written in such a way that sort of a stair step to, um, to virtue, the, the virtue ladder. You have often in those same passages, you have a contrastive pattern, which is the negative, what you don't do, and that's usually referred to in technical uh, the technical literature as the vice list. It's the the negatives, and uh, what you have here is a way of teaching that it should always characterize a church, and that is teaching by contrast. This is what you do, and this is what you don't do, and uh, identifying the differences. We learn by uh, contrast. You don't just learn. Uh, 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 what a counterfeit is by just studying what the genuine article looks like. There, uh, for years and years, and many of you have heard this same kind of illustration too, I uh, would hear these stories about the fact that uh, if you really want to understand anything as it is, as a genuine article, if you want to understand truth as it is, you don't need to spend time reading and learning about the various uh, counterfeit, the false religions. You just need to study the truth. You become so familiar with the truth that you'll spot the counterfeit. And an illustration used of that was that when the FBI is training bank tellers to spot counterfeits. They don't teach them counterfeiting techniques or what's characteristic of counterfeit dollars. They familiarize themselves only with with the genuine article. Came to find out, talking to an FBI agent at one point, that that's not true. That while they do spend a lot of time focusing on what the genuine article looks like so people are familiar with it, they also teach various techniques and various things to look for on the negative side. Why? Because we all learn by not just the positive, but the contrast with the negative. Problem that we have today is we live in a culture, if you're under 40, we live in a culture that has been heavily influenced by an idea called multiculturalism. And in multiculturalism, every culture, whether it is a primitive culture in, uh, in um, Australia or whether it is a Buddhist culture in Japan, whether it is an Islamic culture in uh, Saudi Arabia, whether it is a Christian culture of any stripe, that every culture is of equal value. And so no one has the right to ever make any judgment calls or say anything negative about another uh, set of beliefs. And this has become so much a part of the thinking of the younger generation that I, and this has happened, and it's happened in this church where people will come in, people who are believers who've sat under doctrinal teaching for years, and they are exposed to the fact that I teach by contrast, and they say, oh, you know, that's just too judgmental. Well, you're just thinking like the world. You just sucked up so much multicultural garbage in your soul that you never really learned any doctrine because you don't know how you learn anymore and you are making value judgments on the basis of the world standard of right and wrong and not on the basis of the Word of God because from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, the Word of God consistently, not only does it does it teach truth by also exposing uh, the error but it, it also frequently ridicules the error. 
God loves to make fun of the unbelieving idolaters. Just think about uh, Elijah up on Mount Carmel. But I've actually heard people say, well, Elijah was out of line when he was ridiculing the uh, priests of Baal and, and the Asherah. He just doesn't have any respect for them. Well, God has no respect for this sinner or for carnality. Hello? Wake up! So we... we we think in wrong categories sometimes, and, and the Word of God teaches us that we have to learn in the basis of this kind of comparison and, and contrast. And that's how it exposes and how we get the, uh, the ability through putting on biblical glasses to evaluate our own lives, not the lives of other people, because we can't tell anything about other people. I have enough trouble, trouble trying to figure out when I'm in fellowship or not without trying to figure out when you're in fellowship or not. That's just impossible. And But we have to be able to look at our own lives and we have to determine whether or not we are actually wearing uh, designer spiritual clothes, that is that which is produced by God the Holy Spirit, or if we've just fallen into one of these traps, the Reformed trap or the Keswick trap or the Holiness trap, and we, we've just uh, fallen into the pharisaical trap of wearing, we've got whitewashed sepulchers where we just have uh, knockoff uh, spirituality. So that's really what we see going on here in uh, Colossians uh, 3, 5 through 11 is, is what the true spiritual clothes look up. And I take that from the fact that we have this terminology here of putting off and putting on. That, that was typically used of those who were uh, uh, taking off clothes or, or putting on clothes. So we always have to be careful, though, not to slip into legalism. And I covered this last time, so I'm just going to briefly hit it today. Legalism is not what a lot of people think it is. A lot of people think anybody who says, well, you're a Christian, you shouldn't do that, that that's legalism. Well, it may be and it may not be. Legalism at its very root is the idea that a person's behavior either influences, motivates, or causes God's gracious actions in either our justification or in spiritual growth, that somehow we gain approval with God on the basis of what we do. That's just flat wrong. The only approval we have comes because we possess the righteousness of Christ, not our righteousness. So legalism isn't the same as identifying oughts and ought-nots in the Christian life. It's making non-scriptural mandates necessary, which is part of the problem here in Colossae, and it is uh, the and it also removes the Holy Spirit from the process so that morality or ethics becomes identified with the Christian life apart from any work uh, by the Holy Spirit. This is always a problem, as I've pointed out. As Paul says here, they've cut themselves off from the head, which is Christ. They've cut themselves off from the head, which is Christ, so they're spiritually decapitated. Now think about this image. You've got, it's, if any of you ever grew up on a farm and ever witnessed what happens when a chicken is decapitated, there is a lot of life going on afterwards. There's a lot of action as that headless chicken runs around. Looks like it's alive, but it's dead. But in, once, in that sense, we know it's physically dead, but all those nerves are still all jumbled up, and there's a lot of action. And this is what happens with a lot of Christians. There's a lot of activity, but because they've cut themselves off from the head, which is Christ, 
it's just they're just producing a spiritual knockoff. They've cut themselves off from the authority of Christ and the nourishment from Christ and any kind of spiritual growth. And so what we see here is Paul going into this solution where he emphasizes, and going to the bottom bullet point there, that we are to put to death sin in our life. Now, this brings up the whole issue of the doctrine of death in the Scriptures. And there are seven different ways in which the Scripture talks about death. Now, this is important to understand because some people don't always get this. And I'm going to expand something for you when we get down to about the, uh, I think it's about the fourth fourth point. First of all, there's physical death, which we're familiar with. Physical death is simply the separation of the immortal and uh, immaterial soul from the mortal physical body. When we come to that point where we die physically and the soul, uh, the immaterial part of the body, the spirit, uh, are separated from the physical body, and this is a consequence of the death that God talked about with Adam. It's not that wasn't the original penalty. God did, when God said, the day you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God wasn't saying, you're going to die physically. He said, there's going to be a death that occurs, and there's a lot of consequences to that death, one of which became physical death. But the death that was there was this second category, which is spiritual death. And spiritual de- death describes that state of separation uh, from God of all mankind, uh, at physical birth, which is the legal penalty of Adam's original sin. So we're all born physically alive, but spiritually dead. How do we know that? Because Paul references that in Ephesians 2.1 when he alludes back to the condition of the, uh, of the Ephesian believers before they were saved, and he says, though you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And that phrase, in your sins, is used about a half a dozen times in Scripture and always refers to a status of being spiritually uh, spiritually dead. So the first two are physical death and spiritual death. Now, the problem is, is when we read through certain passages of Scripture that talk about death in the life of a person, we automatically think it's spiritual death when it may not be spiritual death. It may be another another category of death. We're identified with Christ's death on the cross, and that's what we call positional death. This is uh, explained in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, and I've gone over that in the last few weeks, that we are identified, are united with Christ in his death and that is positional death, so that his substitutionary death, spiritual death in our place on the cross uh, is what we're identified with uh, at that moment. But for those of us who are believers, we're regenerate so that though we're uh, spiritually alive, we're still going to die physically, aren't we? There are aspects of, uh, of death that still apply. We can be alive in Christ because of our position, but we're still living like we were dead. And so we refer to this as carnal death or sometimes temporal death. Scripture talks about believers this way, that you can be out of fellowship, and because you're living on the basis of the sin nature, you're carnal, and so you are 
uh, you're you're dead in in that sense. You're not living to God. You're living as if you're dead. You're still spiritually alive, but you're living as if you're dead in terms of your uh, your experience. And as you live that way, so you can you can commit a sin. You're out of fellowship, and at that point you're you're in carnal death. But that may last 30 seconds or a minute or five minutes, and then you confess your sin and you're back in fellowship. So being out of fellowship and being in carnal death is not a necessarily a long-term situation. But if it becomes a long-term situation where you're not walking by the Spirit, you're walking according to the sin nature, then your life is going to take on the trappings of a dead person because you've cut yourself off from the head, which is Christ, and you've cut yourself off from the source of power, which is God, the Holy Spirit. And so this term has been used, one term that I've used in the past to describe this is operational death. But a word I'm going to add to that, which may make a little more sense, is sanctification death. Sanctification death. Because what happens is, and this is alluded to in a number of passages, and we have to come to understand this, this is the opposite of living the abundant life. This is the opposite of living the abundant life. Too often when we read passages in Scripture that talk about the fact that when we're saved we get eternal life, that we only think of that in terms of its quantity, its ongoing life without end with God. But there is a qualitative sense to that phrase as well, and sometimes the emphasis in the context has got to be on the quantity or the qualitative aspect rather than the quantitative aspect. So I want you to pay attention here because if you if you fade in and out, you're going to hear me say something that I'm not saying. So you need to pay attention. Some of the verses that talk about this are John 10:10, 10, 10, Romans 6:23. 1 Timothy 5.6, Hebrews 6.1, and James 2.26. But I'm going to emphasize about three of them for you. In John 10.10, Jesus said, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come, he draws a contrast here, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Now, the first life has to do with what we normally think of as eternal life, that is, life without end with God, that when we trust in Christ as Savior rather than being headed to condemnation and the lake of fire, we're headed to heaven and we will live eternally with God. But Jesus adds a second dimension to that. He says at the cross you get eternal life in terms of life without end, But there's another dimension, and that's the expansion of that life into the present, which gives us an abundant life. But see, if you're a disobedient carnal Christian and you stay there walking according to the flesh instead of by the Spirit, then what happens is you you begin to live just like an unbeliever, and you are operationally dead, and this leads to a lifestyle that where you're miserable, where you never have the kind of happiness that you think you, you should have or that, that God promised, and there's no real joy in your life because you're just dominated by the sin nature. This is the idea of Romans 6.23. Now, this is a verse that many of us, myself included, have used again and again and again to refer to 
salvation as a witnessing verse, the old Roman road, if you're familiar with that, would start off Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Then you'd go to Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And then you would go on to some other passages. But Romans 6.23 in context isn't talking about becoming justified. It's not talking about phase one salvation. It's not talking about moving from being an unbeliever to a believer. How do we know that? Because if you've been with me in Romans, you know that in Romans, Paul is extremely logical about his explanation of the basic doctrines of Scripture and how we become righteous. And he talks about justification in Romans 3 and Romans 4, but in Romans 5, he starts to talk about the implications of what a justified person has. And we're in Romans 6. In Romans 6, 7, and 8, it's talking about how a believer experiences the, as Jesus put it in John 10, 10, the abundant life. So he's no longer talking about how to become righteous before God, but Romans 6, as we saw last time, is learning how to live apart from the dominion of the sin nature. It's not phase one, being saved from the penalty of sin, It's phase two being saved from the power of sin. And so in context, Romans 6.23 isn't talking about eternal death here. It's talking about the present experience of a death-like life instead of the abundant life. And it brings us to a conclusion in Romans 6 that Romans 6 is talking about how we can experience uh, that fullness of life by not submitting to the uh, dominion or the tyranny of the sin nature. But now that we're a new creature in Christ because of our identification with him and his death, burial, and resurrection, we can live for him. So Romans 6.23 isn't talking about uh, being spiritually dead in the sense of an unbeliever. It's talking about being operationally dead and miserable in life because you're continuing to walk according Uh, to the sin nature. And what are the wages that you'll get paid for that? Your life will turn to misery, and you will not produce the kind of life that Jesus characterized as the abundant life. Paul says the same thing over in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. There he says, for godly sorrow. Now, that's how most English translations translate that, But that's not a good translation. I've looked at the grammar of this quite a bit over the years because as you look at this in in English, the noun is sorrow, but the word English word that's in front of that that ends with an L-Y is in English grammar an adverb. But there's no adverb in the Greek text. The Greek text literally says a sorrow uh, according to the standard of God, it's kata plus the uh, 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 accusative there. It's a sorrow according to the standard of God. And what Paul's dealing with in Second Corinthians is the difference between an emotional reaction to something, and we've all had that. We go out and we commit some sin, and it may shock other people. It really shocks us, and or we get caught at something, And there's uh, embarrassment and sorrow, not always because of what we did, but because of the 
getting caught and the exposure of sin and the embarrassment. And that's what Paul refers to in this section in 2 Corinthians 7 is metamelami, which is a word for emotional sorrow. But the word is not always a negative. It sometimes refers to a sorrow that comes genuinely because you've been, you've sinned and you've gotten caught or exposed or whatever, even if it's just to yourself. And so there is a, a genuine sorrow that can go with that. Uh, it doesn't have to go with it, but it can go with it. And it is a sorrow according to the standard of God. We, we commit some sins and we recognize that this was wrong, and there is an, an emotion that goes with that. You don't have to have the emotion with it for confession to be genuine, but sometimes it is. I often use the uh, example that uh, you get angry, you lose your temper, and you confess that to God. And often people say, oh, Lord, I'll just never be angry like that again. I'll never lose my temper again. You beg with God and plead with God because you're trying to think that if you're sincere and you really exhibit sorrow, that this will convince God to forgive you. But God's omniscient. He says, I know you're going to lose your temper 17,892 more times between now and the end of the year. (laughs) So don't try to pull the wool over my eyes and make me think that because you feel so bad about this instance that you're going to change because in an hour and a half you're going to lose your temper again. See, that's... uh, that's not godly sorrow. That's just an emotional reaction. But godly sorrow is when you realize yeah, this was really wrong, and, I'm, I, and you, there's a genuinely an emotion that goes with it. But the trouble is that if we have certain sin patterns that are ours that we've been committing since we were old enough to commit the sin, whatever it is, that we know that by the time we're 40, 50, or 60, and we've committed this sin 783,947 times, that it just doesn't have the same emotional impact on us that it did when we were 11 years old or 8 years old or something like that. And you can't just gin it up and manufacture it because that's just a counterfeit too. But there are some preachers who will make you think that you ought to have the same reaction to it all the time, and it's... It's familiar to us. We're comfortable in that carnal skin. And and we've done it so much, it just can't generate that kind of emotional reaction. But we confess it because it's wrong, and we're going to go forward. So godly sorrow sometimes accompanies something. Sometimes it doesn't. It's not necessary for confession to work. But Paul says for godly sorrow, because some of the Corinthians uh, truly were sorrowful over some of their wrong behavior, He said, for sorrow, according to the standard of God, leads to a change, produces repentance. That's not metamelami. This is metanoeo, which is a true change, leading to salvation. Now, he's not talking about justification here, as we've learned so many times when Paul uses the word group translated saved or salvation or justification. I mean, saved or salvation or or, uh, that it's not just talking about justification, many times it's talking about experiential sanctification. We're, remember, phase, three phases. We're saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved. We are saved from the uh, power of sin. And at phase three, when we're absent from the body face-to-face with the Lord, we'll be saved from the presence of sin. We talked about this just uh, Thursday night in Bible class in Romans, that that we are, we were saved when we were justified, 
Earl Rodmacher, Chancellor of uh, West, uh, Western Conservative Baptist Theological Seminary, used to always kind of shock people for shock effects, say, well, I was saved, I was saved yesterday, I'm saved this morning, I'm saved now, I'm being, going to be saved again five times this afternoon, I'll be saved tomorrow. We're so used to hearing the word saved as a synonym for phase one that it sort of jars us when we hear it as a synonym in phase two. But that's what Paul does. He never uses the sozo word group in Romans to refer to phase one. That's justification. In Romans, he uses the sozo or salvation word group always to refer to the spiritual life after justification. And that's what he does here in 2 Corinthians 7.10. He says that godly sorrow, that is sorrow according to the standard of God, can play a role legitimately in that it leads to change, changed behavior, which leads to salvation, a realization of what Paul talks about in Romans 6 and and in Colossians 3 of putting to death the deeds of the the sin nature. It leads to a changed life and spiritual uh, spiritual growth, which is not to be regretted, but in contrast, the sorrow of the world, which is just that superficial emotional pattern, produces death. Is that spiritual death? No, because you're already born spiritually dead. The world's already spiritually dead. This is He's talking to believers, and he's saying, if you think that that emotion is going to be the key to the spiritual life, it's not. Emotion is just going to continue to produce operational-type death. It's not going to ever get you out of that that constant cycle of sinning and feeling sorry about going on this emotional jag and trying to convince God you're really uh, serious about it this time and, and for God just not to lower the boom on you one more time and you'll make it through. And you just get on the same cycle. It's just like the, that's, that's no different from how worldly religions operate, whether you call it religion or asceticism or mysticism or legalism or whatever the term is. It just leads to operational death. You never experience the abundant life. So that's our, that is our, uh, fifth category. Of death, And that's what Paul's talking about here when he says to put to death your members. Okay, now the other two that I mentioned earlier are, are th- yeah, six, is sexual death, which describes the loss of sexual or procreational ability. It was applied to Abraham and Sarah. And then the second death, which is the long-term uh, condemnation. It's spiritual death continued out into eternity where the unbeliever is eternally punished in the lake of fire. Now, when we look at our passage here, where Paul says, therefore, put to death, this fits a pattern here in Colossians 2, 11 and 12 that I've pointed out, especially in those blue verses in the middle. Therefore, if you died, if and you did, uh, if then you were raised with Christ, for you died. Now, this is... Colossians 3.3, where it's talking now about the reality for we did, all of us, we died um, at that instant that we were baptized by the Holy Spirit, identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. But because that's our position now, verse 5, which is there, has the therefore in green, we're to put to death our members. And what does that mean, to put to death 
these members. Well, putting to death the members has to do with the fact that that it is through our physical body that we bring our lust patterns and our sin nature to fruition uh, in one way or another. Not all of them end up in overt sins, but usually if you have an emotional sin of anger, that's usually expressed overtly. If you have emotional sins of jealousy or bitterness or... uh, uh, anger that o- often is ex- culminates in some sort of overt sin. It's expressed through our physical, our physical body. And what Paul is saying here is he looks at the end product and he says we need to put to death the, the whole process. Now, when he says put to death, he's not he's not ignoring the Holy Spirit. That's not the focal point here. The focal point here is he's dealing with with believers who are operating on pure legalism with false values. And so he's saying, no, you need to quit that false value system. Here's a true value system. You need to put that to death. But over in other passages, when we compare Scripture with Scripture, uh, for example, in Romans 8.11, it's you put to death the deeds of the flesh by the, sin na- by the Holy Spirit, rather. And that is how we, how we grow. But it comes out of an understanding of who we are uh, in Christ. And so we are to put to death our members which are on the earth. See, it's all earthly, it's all temporal, it's all related to who and what we are in Christ. And as Paul says in other places, we do this because we have put on Christ. That's our new identity. So as believers, you've got a new identity in Christ. You've been given a new identity card, and with that, uh, you've been given a number of new things that we've talked about. You've died with Christ. You've been buried with Christ, and you've raised to newness of life. This is Romans 6.3. You have a new nature. That's here in Colossians 3.10. You've put on the new man, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. You have a new life. It's an eternal life. It's a spiritual life. You've been regenerated. Uh, you have a new family. You're in the royal family of God. All of this is the result of being baptized by means of the Holy Spirit. You, we're under new leadership. Colossians 1.18 and Colossians 2.8 talks about Christ as the head. That's the new leadership. Uh, the Holy Spirit leads us. Uh, Romans 8.14 and Galatians 5.18. We have a new way of thinking. number of passages we can go to. Romans 6.11 and Philippians 4.8 are two of them. And you've got a new code of conduct, a new dress code. So you got rid of the old, the old uh, uniform. You cleaned out your closet. That happened at justification, and and we positionally put off all those clothes. They went down to uh, uh, the Salvation Army, and they're going to be sold off to some unsuspecting unbeliever. But now you've got to put on this new wardrobe. And that's the issue here. You don't do it apart from the Holy Spirit. You do it by the Holy Spirit, but you and I still have to engage our volition to put it on. We have to dress according to the new standards, the new dress code of the new family. And that's what Paul talks about here when he gives this list of these things you don't do, these other things you do. He's just expressing the the new code of conduct, the new dress code for the fact that we're now in a new family. So we'll come back next time and look at that a little more and uh, bring out some other uh, aspects of this. But it all comes down in verse 11 to understanding that this comes because of that new ID that we have as a result of the baptism by the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be challenged, to understand that we have a uh, new identity. We're members of a new family and there's a new dress code. 
And that new dress code means we live differently than we, than we did before we were part of the family. We don't live according to the standards of the world. We don't, whether that involves uh, licentiousness or whether that involves asceticism, whether, whether it's ethical or unethical, moral or immoral, uh, the standard's different. It's a standard that is uh, based on walking by the Holy Spirit, and he's the one who gives us the strength, the power, the energy, the ability to live in a way that honors and glorifies you. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that you would uh, enable them to understand uh, the gospel, that Jesus Christ is the good news. He died for your sins. He died for all of our sins. He paid the price so that we don't have to. He paid the price, and it's a free gift. And all we have to do is accept it, and when we do, we have eternal life. And then the issue is, what are we going to do with that eternal life? Are we going to live on on, its, on that basis and develop it, or are we going to just be, remain spiritual infants for the rest of our life? Father, we pray you challenge us with these things. We thank you so much for all that you've given us, for the Holy Spirit who empowers us, and for your word that informs us. And we pray that you would challenge us by this. In Christ's name, amen.